Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Chris Park. I'm Verity Sharp. I'm Patrick Randall. And this is the podcast where we're going to celebrate everything that's wondrous about bees. To have you with us as ever for this episode we're going to be talking to nikki gammons who is part of the bumblebee conservation trust so we're, our focus is on bumblebees um for this episode but as ever we're going to start with our bee moments and patrick's been quite busy with the honeybees haven't you they were, we're talking now in early july but what's been going on yeah yeah well i i was convinced that because i had quite uh young colony well quite small colonies of of, uh, of bees that have been developing um over spring and summer that i wasn't that i was not not going to get too many swarms or not going to get any swarms and uh i've had a couple of uh, swarms straight next to each other and no and it's just not supposed to happen at this time well no I mean, the thing is what is the term supposed to happen <laughs> <laughs> i mean the thing is not supposed to happen in my but well i mean Chris and I have had this conversation many times. You know, Chris, you let your bees swarm. You you pick them up once they've swarmed. Um, it's a natural, uh, it's a natural inclination of the of the honeybee. It's a, it's their natural way of propagating. It's their natural way of reproducing. So, I'm actually more than trying to, more than getting worried about swarming. And what I'm trying to do is rationalise my own mind with what swarming means to actually try and understand to actually it. try and understand it yeah, yeah from so so rather than getting hung up about oh my gosh they're swarming what well, i've got to do something about it i've got to pick up the sw- i've got to stop them from swarming or whatever to actually see swarming as you know something to work with let them do it but the only thing about it is that swarms have a tendency of a landing in a neighbor's <laughs> garden which creates a bit of Embarrassment, possible embarrassment, and B, uh, they always seem to do it when um, when you've got people showing up to to stay. (laughs) Which is what happened happened last time. So you know, so basically they swarmed this time. We've just had some guests arrive, and uh, I literally had to put my bee suit on and go (laughs) pick up a couple of swarms. And that's exactly what happened the the last time they swarmed. um, The same people. The same people were staying. (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> and they only saw me in they only saw me in a bee suit as well for the entire time they were here. So uh but anyway, Chris, have you had have you had many swarms? Not recently. No, no swarms recently. The last swarm I had was from I went out to get it from a uh, from Coles Hill. It came out of there's a really old colony there. It's been in this old model farm wall for years and years and years and years and years. And whenever it swarms they give me a call and it was a I think it's a cast from i had the original and then it was a cast it's a nice place to go it's a lovely group of people there and i'm a bit worried about it because they're having some building work done and they're coming out below an old window ledge and of course they're going to have to redo that bit and then it's right at the end of the row so i'm i'm not quite sure what's going to happen whether whether they're going to call me and i'm going to need to relocate the whole colony or whether they'll try and work around it i really don't know We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Have you done that before? Because yes. just to explain to listeners, when you when you pick up a swarm of bees 
it's it's normally a fairly straightforward procedure of, of getting them off a branch or whatever and enticing them into a, a scab basket or box or or similar container but when you when they've actually taken up residence in a house or in a chimney uh and they're sort of less desirable there to the owner that they might be doing some work they're much more difficult to extract aren't they yes yeah you can't get them out and without you know just doing some building work basically taking off tiles or taking getting into the cavity wall wherever they might be this is a really old stone building it's lovely the the people there love the fact that there are bees there uh but the 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 whole place is having a renovation so the workers work you know once they've start hammering away near that beehive they're not going to be able to work so 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 yes it's a shame because it's survivor stock it's really healthy colony it's been there for years you know and and there are more colonies around in the in the courtyard so it's just i guess nothing you know all good things come to an end and maybe we'll try try and just relocate them to a different part of the building that's already been renovated or something yeah, so you have to go in and and remove the colony on, take the combs out, and you know they, they the bees are disturbed and, bees and they don't, don't like, like it. it. But once you re, yeah. once you put them somewhere else, then they, it's a self repairing unit, so they will all you know reattach the wax and and you know as long as you haven't killed the queen or or damaged the comb too much, they they uh, they get going again. And wild yeah. colonies can can go on and on and on. You know, some people say, "Oh, they don't last more than five years," but some go on for many years, and then then they might swarm, and a new swarm might come in and live where the old one was. So you hear these urban myths of this colony's been in this church for twenty five years, but it, it might not be the same colony. And and but it, but sometimes it, it could well be, but it can be just the same the same place that's got the pheromones and the wax in there that bees are attracted to. So they might have had six months off and then another swarm will go in. So that's changing at Coles Hill as we speak. Have you have you got a, t- a take on, Chris, on why ours might be swarming now when, you know, the textbooks say they shouldn't be? Oh, there's that overused phrase in the beekeeping world, isn't it, that bees don't read the textbooks. <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> and that... And, uh, <laughs> well, don't read the same right. book. For, for good reasons. Yes, yeah, so they will either have, uh, you know, there's probably, a, a, well, there is a really good nectar flow on at the moment. And we've got some warm weather, you know, it's raining today, but we've got warm weather coming. So they're just thinking, oh, look, there's a chance to move on to new comb. Bees swarm for good reasons, because they want new comb. New comb is healthy. Uh, they want to procreate. They want to, to make the most of, of the season and what's happening. So... Uh, okay. What you could do, I mean, you can end up. You, can, I mean, they can get it wrong, of course. You know, you can end up with two really small colonies that might not make it through the winter, and so you can then reunite them if you need to. Judging their stores, you know, come come sort of September time, you you can reunite them, Patrick, and and uh, it's uh, so it's it's that positively reframing swarming, isn't it? That's what the yeah, the kind of yeah, lot yeah, of beekeepers yeah, yeah. are celebrating it and, and celebrating it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's you're on the right lines. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. It's rethink rather than fighting it. It's rethink. It's it's actually looking at it in a positive light. Yeah. Anyway, let's refocus away from honeybees and think about bumblebees and uh, give Nikki Gammons a call of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. (laughs) 
Hi, Nikki. It's Verity. Hello. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Chris is here. Hi, Nikki. How are you? Really good to be talking to you in what I think is actually Bees Needs Week, isn't it? It is Bees Needs Week. It is. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> really nice. And just tell us what your um, role is within the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Do you have a, like a job title? Yeah, I'm the project manager of the Short-Haired Bumblebee Project. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll come to that um, in a little while. Um, but I mean, it's just so great that you've joined us for, for our podcast for Living Being, um, where I think it's fair to say because both Patrick and Chris are, are beekeepers, so we we tend to drift to the honeybee, um, which we of course we love dearly. Uh, so it's just really nice to kind of talk for the next half an hour or so about about bumblebees and you know what's so kind of wondrous about them. But can we start with? your first encounters with them like what drew you to them in the first place have they always been with you yes what first drew me to first place is actually the social insects so I was always interested in the ants bees and wasps from a young kid I think watching on paving stones watching the ants run about and sort of noticing that they seem to work independently yet together to actually do a task and I think it's sort of built from there so I was actually first interested as I said in the ants um, in in the social insect world and then that grew into bees and it grew into wasps as well so I think from a young age it's that fascination of seeing things crawling around on the ground and, and what they're actually doing. Yeah but how they actually work together. Exactly. So what drew you to bumblebees? Do you remember kind of first seeing one and getting, you know, up close and personal with one? With bumblebees, it's always been, I think, that characteristic sort of sound of summer. When you start to see the bumblebees emerge, you know that it's starting to kind of get warmer. Spring is coming and it's sort of, you know, the start of all the flowers coming out. And I think, again, as a youngster in my mum's garden, she's a very keen gardener, is always going out sort of around February, March time and then hearing the very large buzz of those queens coming out and emerging. And I remember sort of from a young age just realizing how big those queens actually were and um, sort of being intrigued by them and what they were up to because they didn't seem to mind what we were doing they were just sort of busy getting on visiting flowers looking for somewhere to nest and just just getting on with their own things so I think Mm. I was intrigued by what they were up to from a from a very young age those queens are incredible aren't they Chris they're amazing I, I love that I've been taken back to my childhood, Nikki. Just those, you know, those childhood moments of uh, of sitting on on the grass or in the pavement and just watching all the ants doing their thing and <laughs> upturning a stone and finding this whole city of ants. And that's so fascinating to a child, isn't it? And I guess it stayed with us as we've become adults. These social insects and how just how how wonderful they they organise themselves and 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 they like you said they just get on with it and they've got this great sense of purpose. And when you see that. That queen bumblebee come out in the springtime. It's like yes, you know, there's you know there's nectar. You know, this whole season is coming. Uh, I really share your your passion for these insects. It's great to hear you, and uh, and to have you on this podcast. And you know, my, one of my questions, one of my questions for you, Nikki, was: uh, Have you ever been stung by a bumblebee? <laughs> and, and lo and behold, uh, a couple of days ago, I was stung oh, no. <laughs> for the first time by a by, by a bumblebee, and it hurts, doesn't it? You know, uh, and uh, I was surprised. It was a, in a friend's shed. He'd, he, he's been locked down and suddenly he's got some work and he went to his shed and it's just chock-a-block full of his tools and I had to kind of ferret through there to find 
this quite a big nest of uh, of garden bumblebees under the floor. Wow! And there were there were hundreds of them, and of course I just had sandals on and got stung on the foot. And and Ow. it's different to a bee sting, I would say. I think it I, I, it seems stronger. And actually, yesterday I was stung by some honeybees, and it felt like a a kind of walk like in a, the park. A, a, like a, yeah, like a welcome. I actually quite enjoyed it. It's like, oh yeah, that's just a you know. Like, oh, thank you. You know, that's nice. That's not a bumblebee. And a uh, kiss. Yes, right. Yes, right. And and of course, you know, it's, I'm never going to get rheumatoid arthritis in that wrist. Well, not for the next year. Anyway. <laughs> so yes, so that's my question was answered. There's so much in there that I want to unpick. I mean, this idea of nests as well, because I think a lot of people don't know that. That, that I mean, let's just take a step back to that moment that you were talking about, Nikki, in spring. That first one comes out, and I'm with you. I love it because it is a sign that oh, things are going to start. You know, after that long winter, but it it just makes me think that bumblebees. And I think possibly um, a lot of people might think like this, work on their own. Because from that moment, this absolutely huge, I don't know if people listening have, have, have had this experience, but you suddenly you're out in the garden or or whatever. And, and, you know, one will go past your ear and it kind of sounds like, I don't know, a kind of like mini motorbike going past sometimes. These absolutely gorgeous, fat bees. But they're not solitary creatures, are they? Um, they actually do work together, like you're saying, w- with the ants. So... I mean, can you, Nikki, can you kind of explain, you know, in a, in a nutshell, and, and is there a way of explaining? Because, of course, there's so many different types of bumblebee that I'm sure generalisation is difficult. But, you know, Chris has just said that nest he finds under mm. a, a shed floor. So clearly they do work together, right? Yes, exactly. Well, just to give a background to sort of the, the bees in the UK, I, I, obviously I know you guys know, but we have about 270 species. Of course, one of those is the honeybee, which which lives in the hive. And then we have 24 different species of, of bumblebee and they are known as social species. So, but... I would say that only 18 of those are what we call truly social. So that means that you have one queen and then you have her worker cast. So, of course, the queen emerges out. She looks for somewhere to nest. She will then forage for that nest for the first six weeks of its development. And she will be collecting nectar and pollen and laying eggs during that time. And it takes six weeks for those eggs to then become adult workers. And as soon as those first brood of adult workers emerge, they replace that queen from going out and foraging. So the queen then remains within the nest and it is the role of the workers to go out, find food and to tend the eggs, the larvae within that nest. But there are another six bumblebee species, which we call cuckoo bumblebees. And these are actually, if you like, um, they're called cuckoo bumblebees because they're very similar to, if you like, the cuckoo bird. So what the female of a cuckoo bumblebee would do is she will emerge around six weeks after her host. She will then look for her host's nest. She will then make that queen subdominant. She may even kill her. She may dislodge her. That cuckoo will then lay the eggs inside of that bumblebee's nest <coughs> and then let the workers of that nest rear them. So mm. cuckoo bumblebees are, are cheaters, if you like, um, of the system. Pirates, aren't they? They are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> are they damaging? Are they like an invasive species or are they just... No, it's all part of nature. Um, the the other remaining bees um, that we have, um, the other 250 species are all, are all solitary bees, which don't form nests. But each of those also have cuckoo bees attached to them as well. So it's a common thing um, in nature that obviously you're going to get a few cheetahs along the, along the way. But they're still important pollinators and 
that's sort of life, isn't it? It's, it's how we get the diversity of life. Some mm-hmm. some play by the rules and others others tend to cheat a little bit. And, and am, I, am I right in thinking, and I may well not be, I, my sort of absolute layman's understanding is that honey, the honeybee is, um, you know, produces honey to overwinter, but it's mm-hmm. the only bee that overwinters. Is that right? Or... Do, do, are there some bumblebees that will create a nest that, that survives a winter as well? That's a very good question. So as you said, honeybees, they will, um, a large majority of that hive will survive over the winter months. They store the honey to get them through as that, as that resource. In the case of bumblebees, their colony life cycle is only on average about three and a half months long. And at the end of the cycle, the original queen... All of her workers and the males die. It is only the new generation of queens that survive. Now, those queens, if it's midsummer, will go straight into producing a new colony cycle. But when we get to the end of the summer, sort of um, September, October onwards, all of that new generation of queens will actually go into hibernation but they hibernate completely by themselves. So they will find a north-facing area, they would dig a hole about an inch or two down deep, and they would just hibernate within the soil, and they take no food with them whatsoever. So how much they've been fed during the larval stage is how much weight food they have that they're overwinter with. So even though bumblebees do collect nectar, from flowers they only store it for about three to five days so they have to constantly go out and forage it's not stored on mass because the queen is the only one that will go into hibernation and and takes no food with her mm. oh you know you know i have to confess that whilst moving this bumblebee colony uh, over the last couple of days i, I had a little taste of their nectar <laughs> in one of those t- tiny little kind of it's like, it's like a little peanut isn't it sort of like a cup really because it's it is it's like a little thimble nectar, sort of down in it uh yes <laughs> tipped a little bit onto a saucer and also had our fingers in there and it is it's just like nectar from uh it's not so they don't ripen it into honey ever they just kind of uh they just pour it in this little cup and then and then feed it to their larva i suppose and uh keep yeah. it in their honey stomachs and we, and uh, we were trying to find the queen and and I think you've answered our question because uh, there must have been so many queens in there because there were you know there were tiny ones and I thought well, maybe they're youngsters but they could be drones and then there were medium sized ones so I thought maybe they're foragers and there were there were quite a lot of really big fat furry you know white tailed yellow and black stripy uh, I think they were garden bumblebees was our yeah. assessment so this some of year there were loads of queens I, I hadn't that's 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 a that's great to know. I hadn't realised that before. I thought there was just one. And then they all came out in the autumn and, and mated and went into the winter. Uh-huh. So, so you relocated them, Chris? Is that OK to relocate a nest? Uh, yes, yes, as long as you take them far enough. And, uh, yeah, it took a couple how of days. Long, how far is far enough? Well, I'm about five miles away from my friend's shed. So it seems to be far enough because they're still here. <laughs> so, so you mean but, if you went any, any nearer times. they would try and get back to where you'd taken them from I don't know I don't know the distance <laughs> Nikki maybe can answer the question I just kind of use the same rule of thumb as honeybees you know if you can move them three feet or three miles if you move them ten feet they'll all cluster where the nest was and might not find the new nest by smell or sight but if you move them more than three miles then they have, they re uh, recalibrate their their home you know and uh, then they they just get on with it is that right nikki yeah so with with bumblebees you can actually still relocate them within the same garden um as as well because um oh. they will eventually <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry if you put lots of hard work into <laughs> to moving them, but you yeah. can. You well, can he didn't. He didn't want them in his garden. Oh bless. <laughs> but, but you know what I think, Nikki, is that um, I think there because there were we moved them and then there were still loads in the shed. And I th- remembered that yep. perhaps sometimes honeybees have a night out or two nights out, or, and and because they've got longer coats and they can they can survive yep. on their own somewhere in a flower or somewhere, you know, and then come back again a few days later, rolling home with a I don't know the walk of shame or something. <laughs> yeah, well, or, is with- that true? It's not entirely true. So what happens is um, the the workers will obviously go out sort of dawn till dusk, but they will return at night. Um, it's very, very unusual for a worker to, to stay out. If you do right. see a bumblebee on the underside of flowers or ones that have obviously slept out overnight, that's actually our males. So at this time of year, at the end uh-huh. of the colony cycle, yeah, is when the new queens and the new males are produced. So the males will leave the nest first, but they're not allowed back in. They have to stay out. And the males of bumblebees will live for about two weeks and they will often um, sleep out overnight on the underside of flowers um, just so they can get a little oh, bit yeah. of shelter. And the male bumblebees have much longer hair compared to the females because of that. So they can be a bit more insulated. Yeah, so they're only produced at yeah, the, the very end. But if you do see that behaviour, that's going to be our males uh, rough sleeping I at saw night. A ma- I saw a male red-tailed bumblebee on yep. the back of a female um, yep. on some ragwort the other day. And she was having a nice drink. She had one leg up and sort of fending him off from behind <laughs> until, she <finished> her <laughs> meal, until she finished her meal. And then she let him inseminate her. And, th- and then they flew off, sort of pair in pair. And he was still on her back as they flew off into the sunset. Yeah, yeah. image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just about this thing about them stinging, because I think a lot of people worry about that, don't they? Uh, you see people kind of panicking, sitting out there mm. with a picnic. Along comes a, a, a bumblebee, and everybody just immediately is up and kind of sandwiches everywhere, and, and you know, trying to run away. Yeah. But I mean, do they? They won't actually make, um, excuse the pun, a bee beeline for you, will they? Because I mean, do they? I mean, uh, my understanding again is probably wrong, but when they sting, they die. So that's not going to be something they're going to do easily. Ah, there's another little bit of an earth myth there as as, as well. It's uh-huh, yeah. yeah, it's only honeybees that die when they sting you, and that's because they have a barbed sting. So when they try and retract it, they can't. And obviously, as they fly away or you brush them off your skin, it, it literally pulls out the, the abdomen. Yeah. Whereas solitary bees and bumblebees don't have a barbed sting, so it means they can retract it. So it's much more like a, mm-hmm. a, a true wasp like a sting. Wasp. Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. a true wasp sting. But bumblebees, you know, all of our bees, they're they're veggies. They want to just visit the flowers and get all the food that they need from flowers. It's very unlikely you you would get stung. It would only be if um, you're running barefoot on a a lawn and you accidentally tread on one. Perhaps you've disturbed their nest and trod on one (laughs) like, like Chris did the other day. But it's normally if they feel constricted. Or if they're caught in your clothing. So it's it's quite unlucky, to be honest, if if you're stung by a bumblebee. But they, they won't actually die if, mm. if they if they do sting you. Okay. So tell us why the Bumblebee Conservation Trust exists. I mean, are they under threat? Yeah, so bumblebees in the UK, this is true for the rest of Europe, across the Northern Hemisphere, are in decline, many of these species. And there's quite a few reasons behind this. 
Um, so in the UK in particular, we've actually had two species that have gone extinct over the last 70 years. And we have a further seven that are classed as rare and threatened. So this means that their populations have declined by a minimum of 60, sometimes even over 90% of the area, the range we used to find them in. So there are a number of reasons for this, but one of the main drivers is loss of suitable foraging habitat. So in the UK, sort of since the end of the, the Second World War, we had the Dig for Victory campaign. We had to intensify our farming to be able to feed the, the increasing population. But with that meant a loss of a lot of our ancient wildflower meadows. A lot of hedgerows were, were dug out, um, increased use of pesticides, fertilisers, increased urbanisation, more roads, etc. So loss of habitat increased use of, of pesticides, fertilisers um, and disease has been a big driver towards the, the decline of, of many of our bumblebee species. And of course, that's impacted on the solitary bee species and, and many other insect pollinators as well. Yeah. And, and people don't want them in their sheds, do they? And things like that. <laughs> yeah, so, it's true. But, uh, mm. but I mean, but it, they would have gone by by the autumn time. It's just that, you know, my mate Trevor, he needed his tools and he, he was just a bit scared, you know, because he, he, he's not a beekeeper, I suppose. And I mean, I was scared when I actually <laughs> actually opened up the nest. So they, like you said, unless you scare them or, or threaten them, then they're not a problem unless they get caught in your hair or you sit on one. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly So they're, they're definitely to be encouraged into, into gardens. But it is this monoculture farming um, that seems to be at the root of a lot of the problems. You know, we need to get back to this nature-friendly farming model. Yes, definitely. Yeah, in, in, intercropping and things like that. Yeah, and it's it's going to be interesting what happens over the next five to ten years um, because there's going to be obviously a lot of changes uh, in the UK um, and with new policies. We'll be use, leaving CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, so we need to put in new agri-environment schemes, new payment schemes for farmers so it's going to be a very interesting time what happens. And there's sort of a movement at the moment within DEFRA um, and the different government bodies for all the devolved countries, yeah. um, public funds for public goods. So it basically is sort of saying, you know, if you do positive things for the environment, you will get rewarded for it. So it seems to be hopefully going in in the right direction of how to make farming sustainable so of course we can still feed our populations that farmers are not going out of business but we need to make sure that it's sustainable in terms of clean water for our wildlife for the soil for our our you know long-term sustainability for the environment and for our food mm, mm. And, and bumblebees can be of a great help to farmers can't they they're such good pollinators if not better than honeybees, you know, if one bumblebee is bumbling around in a polytunnel, you know, from flower to flower, uh, I, I think it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but it can do much more pollination than, you know, 20 honeybees. Yeah, there's a difference in pollination, sort of a little bit between our three types of bees. So honeybees um, are much less furry and they're quite neat when they actually collect the pollen. They make sure it's all combed into the pollen basket. They're quite efficient, whereas bumblebees although they do comb it into their, their pollen baskets, 
they're not as quite efficient. So a lot of it will still remain on the hairs. So that, of course, increases pollination flower to flower. But the most efficient pollinators actually out of the three types of bee is the, the solitary bee. And that's because many of them, yeah, many of them have on the underside of their abdomen, they have long brush hairs, which we call scopa. And purely by static electricity, does the pollen adhere to it? Wow. Yeah, so when bumblebees and honeybees collect pollen, they mix with nectar and glue it onto their pollen baskets. And that actually decreases the fertility of the pollen. And that's why solitary bees actually tend to be some of the most efficient pollinators, but a bit the unsung heroes, if you like, of, of, of pollination as well. But of course... That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. There's some fascinating electrostatic ionic forces around bees. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know much about that? Yeah, it's really fascinating sort of how it how it works. It is literally positive to negative how it how they will adhere to the mm -hmm. brush hairs. But also very recent research has also found that plants will give off positive negative electrical charge depending on how much pollen and nectar is in that flower. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so they can actually have an attraction force to that bee. If it's got more pollen, it has a much stronger electromagnetic force than one that's yeah. been lost. So it's it's so fascinating how this new sort of science has come about. Yeah. M most bumblebees I've seen this week have been on thistles and teasels. Uh, and uh, I think thistles, uh, teasels, <laughs> thistles and thistles, <laughs> uh, thistles, uh, farmers hate thistles, don't they? They're always pulling them out, digging them out, stopping them flowering, and probably for good reasons. But they're excellent for bees and they're excellent for uh, other other creatures and insects as well and and it, i don't know if i was writing a policy i'd write some kind of thistle friendly clause in it and and because thistles are there not just for bees but also uh thistles will will protect young trees from deer and you know, there's this whole in the, in the whole rewilding scenario over the next hundred years of i don't know i don't want to be doom and gloom but you know industrial breakdown and and the end of the world and all those things then i think the thistles are going to be really important mm. what do you think about thistles yeah they are incredibly important um particularly actually for males at this time of year so they mainly are a nectar source not so much a pollen source um, many of them so often you will find males grouping on them of course males don't collect pollen it's only the females that do so they are a massive attraction um to to the male bumblebees I can understand it a bit from the farmer's point of view as well, because if you do get some thistles, they can become completely dominant, particularly creeping thistle. And it means your grass density reduces. And if you're trying to get grazing in, it, it it's a hard balance between them. And if you're yeah. if you're taking and you can't really have a set aside because the thistle seeds just blow all over it, don't they? Yeah. The so it's field. it's yeah. a. I think it's about having a balance with farmers. So perhaps if they don't like thistles, there's there's lots of other flowers that we can put in that, that will be good for um, if you take a hay crop, that they're going to be really good herb rich for, for the cattle to feed them over the winter. I think there's there's lots of alternative thistles that are great, but I think we're probably never going to be able to persuade farmers, unfortunately, to, to love thistles as much as we do. But there are lots of alternatives um, that we can have that will provide nectar and pollen at this time of year and throughout the season. But certainly on areas like roadside verges, seawalls, where obviously they're not being taken for a hay cart, it's not being used to feed livestock, thistles are fantastic. And letting some grow in your garden, you know, you can have ones like globe thistles, which I've got 
covering my garden. But They're I beautiful, also, aren't they? Yeah. Absolutely stunning. And you can get some amazing pictures of insects on them because they sit still on them and you can get a really good idea. But if you also wanted to let some of the thistles in your garden actually come up, they are very, very beautiful as well. Um, yeah, and they're edible. You know, the roots of thistles are exactly, delicious. If, if exactly, exactly. Have you ever tried those? They're really good. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. They are absolutely, you know... A fantastic one to have so i think maybe with farmers not so much but certainly in nature reserves roadside verges in your gardens fantastic to have thistles beautiful and, flowers. and the, the other flowers you were going to mention that farmers might be able to encourage on their set aside there's loads of that i mean that, that whole cover crop thing is absolutely brilliant because this year has been particularly good for white clover hasn't it it's just been this amazing year. you see it everywhere and i think that's what's really nice about this whole regenerative um, agriculture movement this idea of, of cover crops so basically you never have bare soil and it seems to me that there's a lot of, lot of work going on in seed mixes that are just automatically going to attract bumblebees and everything everything else. But certainly white clover this year, I've really, really noticed. And where we are, we've also we're lucky enough to have sanfoin on, on the hills, which is just this amazing like pea flower. And it's and it's all those uh, actually kind of just wildflowers, really, aren't they? That, that seem to just naturally be an attractant for for, for bee species is, is, is that kind of a way to, to look at it, Nikki, that basically nature's got, got the answers. We just let the wildflowers regrow in a way. Yes, you're exactly right. I mean, traditional um, hay meadows, traditional wildflower areas um, will have a natural succession of flowers throughout that season. So at the beginning of the season, you'll have things like vetches coming through. Um, you'll have things like foxgloves. And then moving on, you'll have the clovers, the, the red and white, the things like burstfoot trefoil, the vetches. And then later on in the season, again, you'll have things like black whorehounds. So in nature, no matter what soil type, no matter what aspect whether it's wet whether it's a sunny area shade area there will be a plant that of course is suitable for that soil type so it's about knowing and if you're working with farmers or even in your garden match the flowers that you choose to your soil type don't don't try and grow something that's never going to grow mm -hmm. because it's, it's just not and, not right for it so it's and and trees do trees as well, of enjoy course. trees as much as honeybees? Yeah, trees are um, willow at the beginning of, of the year yeah. is crucial, obviously, for honeybees, for those early emerging bumblebees and solitary bees. There are so many solitary bees that feed exclusively on willow. It is such a good flower, um, uh, sorry, mm. a good tree to have. There's a really old saying in Irish from the ancient Irish Oem tract, which was this mystical alphabet tree alphabet and bird alphabet and other alphabets and there's a saying that goes uh, willow is the strength of bees i don't know how to say it in old irish oh and, and it, yeah willow also has the strength of bees because you can use what well, like one willow rod is just you know one rod like one bee but ooh, lots of willow rods working together cooperating you can make a basket or a boat or a house you know, so it's a great ancient oh, piece of fantastic. Irish folklore. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. And yeah, it, it just is a great tree uh, to have, but also as well, things like orchards, um, any of the, the fruit trees are going to be great as well. So there is, there's literally an exhaustive list of, of what you yeah. can plant, um, depending on what what you have in your garden, what you'd like in your garden. There is always something to have. So even if you have a north-facing shady garden, go for hedgerow species naturally because those are the ones Bram that brambles. are used to shade. Exactly, brambles, things like foxgloves, even things like white dead nettles. So not necessarily having to go to a garden centre and buy sort of the cultivars, looking at wildflower alternatives. 
But one of the best things you can do is actually just let whatever's growing there come through because obviously it's it's suitable for that flower. So I think it's about... Yeah, so the, the best thing might be to do nothing. <laughs> but maybe, exactly. Maybe take, take out you know. a few thistles if you don't like those. <laughs> yeah, sort yeah. of manage it how you want, but let things come up. And if you like the look of them, leave them there because they're going to be what naturally should be in that area and it will look good. So it's it's come, it's come moving away a little bit from less even less intensive management of our gardens. It's trying to sort of work with it and and see what naturally comes up. Yeah, Verity's been doing that, haven't you, in, in your garden? Yeah, so I've, well, we're, we're on our second year. Yeah, just second year of just letting things go. And it's, it's a hard sort of psychological challenge as much as anything, but, it, but it's, it's the rewards. I encourage anybody to do it because the rewards are, you know, a millionfold, really, in terms of the life that you get back. All sorts of flying insects, butterflies, um, all sorts of different types of bee, hoverflies absolutely everywhere at the moment, you know, and, and just and another thing is just putting in that little bit of water. We dug a, a small uh, pond, you know, it's these things that it, it, it is instant if you want instant life. I mean, that is what a guy, there was a lovely friend of ours, John Ball, who died recently, who just was an advocate for um, growing um, wildflowers that were attracting bees. Uh, had no time for honeybees, did he, John? Um, but he gave us quite a lot of flowers for the garden as well. And 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 he was the one that said to me, you know, what is a garden for? Surely a garden is a place for life, you know. And if you go out there and mow your lawn every day, you're going to have a dead space, basically. What's the point? You know, just just bring your garden alive. It's so easy to do, and just take a step back. And if those thistles come that you don't like, as I've, I mean, I let quite a lot go. Um, to seed last year which was perhaps a bit of a mistake I could have taken them out before that point at which they went to seed because I have gotten them now coming up in the lawn but they're so easy to pull out where you don't want them but leave them where they're where they're flourishing leave them at the edges you know all of that they're quite easy to to contain once once you've got it on top of it but look we, we can't keep you for, for all day Nikki though although we'd love you to I was going to ask you actually what your favorite bumblebee was but I imagine by that job title you gave us that what was it short haired bumblebee short haired. that must be it right so well <laughs> it it is that one i do love that one but i actually my favorite is actually the ruderal bumblebee and the the, the ruderal the ruderal it's called it's called oh, bombus okay. ruderatus and it's actually one of the uk's rarest species and it comes in a variety of different color forms it, it one color form is the white tail with the and it has three yellow stripes on the body but it also has an all black version as well which is much easier to identify but it's a, a really beautiful species and, and one which we've been working on the project when, where we've been working with farmers and different landowners. This rare species has, has really expanded. Um, it's recolonized into areas it hasn't been recorded in for between five to 25 years. And it's a, it's a real fighter. So I, I really mm. sort of admire this bumblebee. It's sort of one of the UK's yeah. rarest, but it's it's coming back. It's fighting back. If you give it the space the opportunity with the right forage, the right nesting, it comes back. And so it's a bit of a symbol of hope for me. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful species to, to have a look at. OK, well, well, so that's obviously one project that you're actively doing. What other things are the BCT, the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, doing? Sort of current projects that are on the go that people can get involved in? Yes, Bumblebee Conservation Trust has projects all over the UK, particularly mainly focusing areas where we have our rare bumblebees. Um, so we have two projects actually in Kent. We have one in North Kent, which is making a buzz for the coast. I'm in South Kent in East Sussex, working on the coastal areas there. 
We then have another project in the southwest, which is working with farmers, different landowners, giving advice on how to manage and maintain flower-rich habitat. We have a lot of projects along sort of coastal Wales, which is another very, very good hotspot for our bees. We have an educational project in the Midlands, which is working with school groups and education to the next generation, looking after our bees. And we've got another big project in, in Scotland, uh, which is working with a bee species called the Great Yellow. So it's working with the Macar habitat there, um, particularly on a lot of the islands, the old crofting system. So, mm. yeah, lots of things across the UK that we do. But if you go on our website, www.bombeeconservation.org, have a look. We, we've got lots of exciting things and there's lots of useful tools on there as well. If, if you've got kids, there's lots of educational things that you can download and also ID. So if you are having a look in your garden, wondering which bumblebees you have, we've got a little ID um, guide on there as well that you can have a look. Great, uh, great. And are you doing sort of linking up with, with other people? It just seems to be somehow with conservation quite often in my head anyway it becomes quite compartmentalised you know there's plant life working for plants there's these people working for bumblebees mm-hmm. and, and what I think is absolutely crucial now if ever is mm-hmm. that we data share and everybody gets together to bring together what are ecologies they can't things can't exist without other things can they so interdependence yeah, of all projects exactly and, and, and life, it yeah. just seems to me that you know so do, do you work with other groups to kind of yes. get, get those links going yeah exactly what you said you know we might be specialists more in bumblebees habitat restoration but plant life are the experts in plants so of course we are singing from if you like the same hymn book we both want to restore flower rich habitat and we my project works with rspb we work with natural england who give advice so we're always looking for local partners we work with wildlife trusts so all of the projects um, are looking to interlink because it always, if you're applying for funding as well, it makes it stronger if you are working with different charities. Like you said, there's no point in working independently and, and keeping those ideas to yourself. We all want to improve our habitat. So if we've got ideas for best practice, it's great to share those ideas with each other. And something that is now, I think, more and more key in conservation is getting those experts together around a table Because if you can get everybody around, the ideas that come through are going to be so much better than if you've just got one or two people talking. So Mm. I think that's now much more becoming um, the new thing, if you like, in conservation, where we're working together, applying for grants together, knowledge sharing. So I'm I'm really I think that's a very positive thing that's coming through now. Yeah, and do you have like a like a bumblebee conference or something like that? Do you have bumblebee conventions? We do events that people can go to. Yes, we 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 do. So there is um, the bumblebee action groups. Um, that have different conferences every two two years. People like Bug Life ourselves will be there. And again, it's presenting ideas, new research, new findings um, to try and share again best best practice. And it's also um, being present at things like uh, the Kent Field Club, for example, or local county shows as well. So it's about spreading that knowledge, yeah, not yeah. just at a scientific academic level, but down to it, down to, you know, if you're at a county show, you know, what what's the best flowers to plant in your garden? What's going to give you the biggest hit? What's mm. going to do the most for, for bee species, mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. insect pollinators? Mm-hmm. So... The whole thing now is 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 knowledge dissemination, isn't it? There's no point, like you say, in keeping records to yourself. You know, if you've got rare bees in that area, 
tell the people so they can get local pride. And if people have local pride and ownership of it, they're more likely to conserve it. Nikki, are you worried about the Asian hornet and how that might affect native pollinators and and population? Yeah, the Asian hornet, of course, is a a threat to to UK. We've seen it spread across across Europe. Um, It is a very efficient hunter and it will take a variety of different insects. So, and bumblebees too? Yeah, we'll take bumblebees. It's pretty opportunistic. It's a generalist. So it's going to go for for anything it can catch, pretty yeah, much. A dead fish or, or, a, <laughs> yeah. or a, an, old, an, an old plum or some bumblebees. Yeah, and I think this is the problem when you're moving um, different materials, of course, around the world without actually checking. So, of course, it was not deliberately introduced to to the UK. It came over in plant material, timber materials. And this is something we need to be careful with as well because we're seeing diseases spread as as well. So we do have to be very careful when we are moving things around globally because in Asia, it's part of the natural, of course, fauna over there. So it has its place. um, But if you introduce something that hasn't been in that area before, it can cause a lot of destruction and it's it's very difficult if something's very successful at colonising to try and prevent that. I do think you're helped in this kind of getting the message out about the bumblebee, just by the or, or bees themselves, aren't they? Because they, the, the image of the bee is a very positive one. It's a very childlike thing, actually. People love to draw it. People love to see, you know, even if it is just the black and white, uh, black and yellow striped image, you know, which might be completely wrong. But you know, you're really helped with getting the message out there. And I think there's a lot of that people can do to engage with that in their communities. I mean, we we are lucky that we we play music, and we've had a. Um, I could uh, say this is a very good thing. You have a bee's knees up. And for us, it was like a big Kaylee, you know, and you can even get people dressing up as bees and, you know, putting silly antenna on, all those sorts of things. I think it's it's a way of making us all connect and care because that's ultimately what we've got to persuade everybody to do. Exactly. I think bees are, are part of our heritage culture across the world. I mean, you go to any country and the bee is always thought of as a friendly, hardworking. It provides our fruit and vegetables for us. You know, they're they're a they're passive and they are a nice symbol of, like we said earlier, the beginning of spring. It's going to get warmer. You know, we're going to have more flowers, you know, and they are they're just hardworking, charismatic and cute, which always does help. And mm. you can then underpin so much else using the bee as that charismatic species, because obviously farmers like them for pollination and you can restore ecosystems with them using them as the flagship because they're so positive you can restore flower rich habitat which has largely been lost from the uk and large swathes of europe that's going to help so many other dare i say less charismatic species but are as equally as important as well so i think using the bee as a symbol can really help restore ecosystems as a whole yeah brilliant yeah, perpet- perpetuating the folklore and and all the charm and the benevolence of the humble bee, yes, really is is fascinating and and enriching. Isn't yeah, it also? charm is a lovely word, isn't it? It's charming, but it's also got this magical quality. It's it's brilliant, Nikki. It's brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for for all the work that you do and and the BCT do. And uh, we will put all the uh, information about um, the your, your your website and the organisation, obviously, on our links as well. But um, thanks ever so much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah th- nice to speak you, to you. Thank you, Nikki.
That was fun, wasn't it? I, I loved uh, all of that. Really a nice. I mean, I've just had coffee, so that's always fun, isn't it? When you've had a bit of coffee. <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, it was great. Great to talk about bumblebees and and what a great effervescent uh, being she is. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it just kind of breeds warmth, doesn't it? All, all those sorts of subjects. And this vision of, of a world populated by bees and plants and, and people and everything benefiting. I just, oh, I just hope we get there, you know. Yeah, I like what she said about the, um, the flagship, um, these flagship insects. You know, because I mean, they're charismatic, aren't they? Bumblebees are just charismatic. Mm. They, they, they've got something about them, them, themselves that just captures our imagination they're kind of bumbling they're a bit cartoony yeah mm. and they're just sort of mm. jolly little <laughs> fellows yeah <laughs> and they're, well they just they just got something about their movement and their and their just deliberate movement between flowers yeah and the way that they look look as if they can't they shouldn't be able to get themselves off the ground yeah some of size. them i mean there are some absolutely <laughs> tiny ones aren't there that we don't even notice but those big fat bumblebees and the way their legs kind of just hung, hang underneath this great big sort of ball of fur yeah, going along it's, yeah, it's just yeah. brilliant but you and i i mean you know when we first introduced bees um or get the idea of introducing honeybees that's exactly what happened to us your your focus becomes on looking at what you've got and and you know if there is one purpose for getting involved in in bees or any other species it's because exactly like Nikki I think was saying at the end that by having one flagship thing that you're interested in you just will automatically get absorbed by absolutely everything else that you suddenly are noticing because you're looking in the first yeah, place yeah that's right and you then yeah. and then you then look at the flowers you then look at the forage and then you and then you look at the, the habitat and then you look at overwintering um you know I think there's another important point there we we feed we we look at plants that 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 are nectar rich for insects but then we sort of sometimes switch off as to how they're going to be there again next year mm. how those insects are going to survive the winter mm. and i think that's something really important to think about yeah i like the way she describes the ruderata as a fighter you know so they are yeah. they've got this charm they've got this bumbling sort of dumbledore nature but they're tenacious also you know they're fighters and and, and they can you know given the chance they will just just, just yes. a great sense of purpose of going to do their work and, and perpetuate themselves and, and be yeah. a benefit to the world around them. I'm going to go and look that one Love up, that. actually. That just sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Um, no, that's great. But yeah, and that, that, that idea of overwintering, I, I suppose that's habitat as well, isn't it? It's kind of, um, I mean, we've got old teapots we've put in our garden, haven't we? With, they with, didn't work. They didn't work. <laughs> you know, these sorts of ideas, though. And like right. you, Chris, well, you've put yours away, you've ever put it now. But, you know, if you have got an old shed or whatever that you can just leave... Because it will be piles used. of straw. Yeah. Piles of straw. Yeah. yeah, you can make little boxes. Actually, I'm, I'm sure they've got information on there about making uh, a bumblebee uh, nesting yeah. nesting box. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, you know, then you know uh, compost heaps. They love they yes. love compost. Heaps. Well, you quite often see them, don't you, disappearing into the ground. They'll just find this little crack. Yeah. And they'll just go under the old rabbit holes. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Anyway, look, that's that's just so much, isn't there, to go away and absorb. So. um Thank you, one and all, for listening to Living Being. We love doing it. We love that you're listening to it. Please do rate and subscribe as ever. And, yeah, we'll put all that information on the website, won't we? Yep, put it on the website, livingbeing.com. Uh, like us on Facebook, social media. Create a buzz. Oh, dear. Um, zoom, zoom, zoom. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. Bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.